Now today, we are in the second week of our series called How To, series where we're talking through how to do some things that Christians need to know how to do and how to do well. Dave started off the series last week by talking to us about how to share our faith, and today we're going to continue the series by talking a little bit about how to, well, I don't want to tell you, I want to set it up a little bit more. Don't look at the screen or else you'll, you'll get ahead. Um, so for uh, over 50 years, a little bit over 50 years, this huge study known as the General Social Survey has asked hundreds of thousands of Americans a set of questions in an attempt to gauge where American society is at and in which directions it's trending. And one of the key questions on this yearly survey goes as follows. Taken all together, how would you say things are these days? Would you say that you're very happy, pretty happy, or not too happy? So three options. Very happy, pretty happy. Not too happy. And so first off, the good news, okay? And the good news is that despite whatever you might have been led to believe by, you know, I, I don't CNN or Fox News or your social media feed or your favorite podcast grifter, most Americans are actually kind of happy. That's what most Americans say. I'm kind of happy. Let's poll the room this morning. Show of hands if you would say, you know what? Yeah, I'm kind of happy. How many kind of happy people do we have in the room today? See, it's a kind of happy room. Dave Chappelle once joked that most people's lives are kind of like an above-ground pool. Do you get it? I mean, like, it's a pool in Texas. Do I wish it were nicer and in the ground? Yeah, but it's, it's a pool. It'll do. Most people's lives are kind of like an above-ground pool. So anyways, the data seems to confirm this, and most people are kind of happy. That's the good news. But the bad news is that after decades of steady kind of happiness among Americans, happiness has really started to dip over the last 20 or so years, right? So you see, we're going along kind of happy, kind of happy, and all of a sudden we've got this big dip going on here. And so why is that over the last 20 years, what is happening that is causing us to become unhappier? Well, Sam Peltzman, he is an economist at the University of Chicago. He's kind of the unofficial dean of happiness studies, spent a good portion of his career pouring over all this happiness data. Recently wrote a paper where he analyzes the happiness dip and what all the possible variables for it could be. So stuff like gender, race, age, education, income, sexuality, geography, being a Cowboys fan. Um, you might have noticed that the dip, right when Romo fumbles that extra point, that's when. And his rather surprising finding was that when it comes to happiness, apparently nothing matters more than marriage. Marriage, that allegedly outdated and antiquated institution that is undoubtedly one of the greatest sources of frustration, consternation, and dopamine constipation. Marriage, marriage. Huh. Who knew? Quoting from the paper, marriage is the single most important differentiator when it comes to happiness. Now, bear in mind, Sam Peltzman, he's not like a Christian marriage therapist. He's not a Christian who was looking for some pro-marriage propaganda. No, he's an economist who analyzes data. And the data says that despite all the ways in which marriage can be the worst, and despite all the ways in which marriage is allegedly this very antiquated and outdated institution, marriage is not just one of the, but it continues to be the greatest source of happiness even in this modern world of ours. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that's what the Bible says. I'm not saying that's what I would say, because depending upon the day, I would not say that. <laughs> Mondays, nope. Saturdays, perhaps. I'm saying 
that that's what the data says. Isn't that weird? How could that be true? Well, now let's listen a little bit to what the Bible says so we can learn a little bit, hopefully, about how to stay married. If you're not married, there's a bunch of stuff in here for you too, I promise, just to have ears to hear. All right, so Genesis 2, that's where we'll be. Read verses 4 through 8, and then we'll hop ahead to verse 18. It says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, right? And man became a living thing. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had Formed. Skip ahead to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, well, it's, it's not good, though, for the man to be alone, so I will make a helper suitable to him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed, right? Genesis 2, 4 through 8, 18 through 25. <clears throat> so here in Genesis 2, we have this iconic creation story. God, um, God reaches down into the Adama, it's Hebrew for dust, and from it, God makes Adam, it's Hebrew for human, or the man, a little bit of Hebrew wordplay for those of you who are exhilarated by such things. Only me. Uh, and then God places the human in the garden to tend it, and this brings us to something very important that God says in verse 18 says, it's not good for the man to be alone, so I will make him a helper suitable to him. Now, I know what a lot of you are thinking. You're thinking, you know, man, if God had just started with creating a dog, <laughs> might not be women, right? Man would be like, what is this God, a dog? This is great. I love it. What? Don't want to try a, a what? A woman? I, the dog's great. Woman sounds complicated. This dog is really fantastic. Uh, anyways, none of the animals are suitable helpers. And so uh, eventually God puts Adam into a deep sleep, pulls out one of his ribs, and from it makes Eve, makes woman. And when Adam awakes to see what God has made, he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, which is a phrase used elsewhere in Scripture later to um, describe two people who belong to each other because that's ultimately what marriage is. It's learning how to belong to each other. And then the scene closes with this classic formulation of marriage being a process by which you leave your family you're weaving a new family, then you're cleaving to this new union. There's a lot of stuff we could explore here, but I want to focus in on this aforementioned verse 18. Okay, it is not good for man to be alone, so I will make him a helper suitable to him. Now, this phrase translated a suitable helper in English is the Hebrew phrase chazer konegdo, and it is a phrase filled with resonances. Um, the word chazer can mean like helper. 
It can also mean ally in a military context. It's used a lot in scripture. And then it can also mean something like strength. And while all all these translations are good, there's truth in all of them, I think it's really fruitful to explore this idea that marriage is ultimately a a union of two people with corresponding strengths, okay? Chazer connecto, it means God wants to put two people together with corresponding strengths. And so here in Genesis 2, we get our first glimpse of something that comes up again and again and again in the biblical story, and it's really quite frustrating. And it's that God intentionally designs every single one of us incomplete. Because God wants to make us need each other. Okay. Every single one of you has been intentionally designed by the infinite creator of the universe with a design flaw. That you are incomplete. And thus you need others to make you complete. It is all over the New Testament too. Right? Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and all that stuff about how we all get different spiritual gifts. Remember that? Why? Well, it's so that everybody can serve and has to be served by others about God designing us for dependence instead of independence. And it is very annoying. I know, but it's just the way it is. Because God in his infinite wisdom, as you know, I don't know, our creator knows that what we most need is not independence. Rather, God knows that what we most need is belonging. You need belonging more than you need independence. Why is that the case? Well, it's the case because reality itself, okay, space and time, it springs forth from this transcendent community of belonging that we call God, that we call the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so if you don't know how to belong to another, if you don't know how to belong with others to others, then that means that you don't know how to live in sync with reality with ultimate reality, because ultimate reality is a transcendent community of belonging, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so that, you know, that's a little philosophical, but right, you follow, it roughly checks out, checks out. And it can even sound kind of wonderful sometimes, can it, depending on the mood that you're in? In marriage, we step into a union of corresponding strengths that cultivates dependence and creates belonging. Doesn't that sound nice? I know. Um, But of course, another and equally accurate way to say this is that marriage is a union of two people with two different strengths. Difference is another word for corresponding. And difference is always quite difficult because difference means that two self-absorbed selves are going to have to learn how to get over themselves or kill each other. Those are really the only two options, right? Metaphorically and literally, you know, most murders are crimes of passion. Um, Now, marriage has always been a challenge, always so far as I can tell. But as I'm sure you're aware, it's, it's particularly challenging right now in modern Western cultures where fewer and fewer people are getting married and then fewer and fewer people are staying married. And so what exactly is going on here? Why is it getting harder to stay married? Even though paradoxically, even in this modern world of ours, it is still the greatest source of happiness. Well, there are a lot of things that we could mention, but um, if I had to put it in a sentence, okay, it'd be something like this. This would be the sentence. The rise of hyper-individualism has made it harder to stay married because it exponentially intensifies the everlasting struggle to get over yourself. Now, say it again. The rise of hyper-individualism has made it harder to stay married because it exponentially intensifies the everlasting struggle to get over yourself. So uh, I'm going to tell you a story. You have heard it a million times. You've heard it every single day of your life. Even if you did not know this was the story you were hearing, here's how the story goes. For most of human history, 
basically all of it. Everybody was really repressed and unfree and burdened by complying with the enormous expectations of others, of their communities, of their authorities. But now, now we're entering an age of liberation in which we're all expressing what was repressed and freeing ourselves by offloading the expectations of others so that we can be true to ourselves as defined by ourselves. Have you heard that story before? Of course you have. Every single modern movie, book, podcast, you name it, every modern story is just some variation of the self-liberation story. Um, I talked about this a little bit in a series we did in the fall called You Are Not Your Own. Some of you hopefully remember it. And I told you that this self-liberation story that we modern people love to tell ourselves because we think it, it makes a lot of sense. It is this mix of really good and biblical and hilariously naive and self-destructive. Probably about equal portions of both so far as I can tell, but as it pertains to the topic at hand, the rise of hyper-individualism makes it harder to stay married by exponentially intensifying the everlasting struggle to get over yourself by telling you that you need to be true to yourself, not get over yourself. In other words, in a hyper-individualistic culture wherein you not only have a right, but you have a moral obligation to be true to yourself as defined by yourself, getting over yourself is not only not the solution, but it is the cause, right, of every single one of your problems. Because if the one thing that you must do above all else is express yourself and be true to yourself as defined by yourself, then the one thing that you cannot do is what? Get over yourself. And so do you see this pickle that we've gotten ourselves into? Marriage requires you to get over yourself. And yet we've bought into the story that has told us the one thing that we cannot do is get over ourselves. So here's an interesting fact. In the United States, 69% of divorces are initiated by women. Hmm. Here's an even more interesting fact. Uh, in marriages where both People in the marriage have some form of college education. 90% of divorces are initiated by women. So for whatever reason, there, there is something about more educated, privileged women that makes them especially prone to desire divorce. Why do you think that is? Dave said he wanted to answer that one, so he's going to come up now and... Uh, <laughs> Y'all really think I'm going to answer that question? I'm not dumb. I like this job. I'm not answering that question. Nope. <laughs> Look, <clears throat> no, I'm walking on some eggshells here. So uh, let me come right out and say it. No, it's not because men are better than women. I wish it were true, but a lot of human history, namely all of it, seems to indicate that it's not the case. Neither are we worse, okay? Like Genesis 2 says, it's a corresponding strength situation we got on our hands here for all sorts of reasons that we've got ourselves into this situation in the modern world wherein the most common form of marital conflict seems to be this conflict between what I would call like the emotionally stunted husband and the emotionally discontent wife. Does that sound familiar? According to my very scientific analysis, somewhere between 99 and 99% of the marital conflict that I deal with, that I help couples deal with, is some version of he thinks things are pretty good because he's a pretty good guy who's pretty nice and he provides pretty well. And she thinks things are pretty bad <laughs> because she feels like they're just not connecting. Does that word get said a lot in your household? You ever done a drinking game with it? Be careful, you'll get in trouble. Um, and so... I need to clarify here. Sorry, guys. No, she does not mean that kind of connecting, guys. <laughs> Never means that. Um, 
She means she wants more emotional, spiritual, however exactly we want to describe that, connection, okay? Now, rather than placing blame here, what I think we need to do is seek understanding. It's just a good rule of thumb for you if you want to be a grown-up in this world. Instead of placing blame, be somebody who seeks understanding. And the first thing that we need to understand is that, is that right now, more than ever in the history of the world, married people walk into marriage and then in the midst of the marriage cultivate different expectations of the marriage, don't we? Because think about it. For most of human history, everybody kind of had the same expectation, right? It's kind of, there's just one. He would protect and provide. She would nest and nurture. That was just the way every marriage more or less functioned. There were biological constraints at work with that. Uh, men had more testosterone and women had more estrogen. And as Robert De Niro once reminded us, men have nipples, but you can't milk them. Um, <laughs> while men still can't produce milk, a lot of things have changed. And both men and women need to be much more understanding of how challenging this change in marriage expectations can be. And so dudes, dudes in the room, hear me out. Hear ye, hear ye me. I, look, <clears throat> I know that most women can be kind of crazy, okay? Ladies, I'm just kidding. I'm just reeling them in with some guy talk, okay? <laughs> just, just kidding. But guys, for real, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I understand. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. Um, time is not moving backwards. And we will never return to a time all that you have to do in a marriage is protect and provide for your property called woman. Because in point of fact, there was never a time when that was the fullness of what you were called to do, of what you were called to be in a marriage. That was never what it was supposed to be. Ephesians 5.25, a lot of you know this verse. It says that you were called to love your wife just like Christ loved the church. The same Jesus who said what about himself? That he did not come to be served, but to serve. Which means that marriage is not about you spending your life being served by your wife. You kidding me? But rather, marriage is about you sacrificing your life in order to serve your wife however she needs it, okay? That's what marriage has always been about. All that to say, dudes, in all love, you need to get over yourself. You need to get over yourself. I say that as someone who also very much needs to get over himself. I thought I had, it turns out I still love myself very much, you know? I know a lot of you feel like, man, I've come so far. That can't be the solution. You know what, dude, you have come so far, but here's what you've done. You have gone from the 99th floor in your ego skyscraper to the 97th, and there are a thousand basement floors, okay? That's the situation that all of us are dealing with here, okay? So guys, you need to get over yourself. Then ladies, hear me out. Actually, I don't wanna get in trouble. Ah. Um, ladies, respectfully, please, maybe, consider the possibility that you could get over yourselves a little bit too. Can I say that? Am I allowed to say that? Is that too much? I got, I got an amen. It's from a man. No, I just... No, um, because there's a chance. This is a small chance. This is the smallest chance ever, right? I know. But there's a chance that some of us are maybe over our skis a little bit at this point in this modern combination of self-liberation and relentless therapeutic introspection and ever-increasing emotional expectations has created an unhealthy compound of self that is really good at disguising narcissism as self-care and self-absorption as liberation. I don't know, I'm just a dumb guy making sounds with my mouth though, so just take that for whatever it is or isn't worth. Upon hearing all this, I know that all of us, okay, men, women, all of us, 
we bristle a little bit. You can feel it, right? You bristle. I bristle at it because we think to ourselves, but Austin, are you kidding me, dude? Like, if I get over myself, won't I lose myself? Tell me to get over myself? I'm going to lose myself if I get over myself. Um, yeah. You got it. That's, that's kind of the point. Remember, Jesus certainly made a point to make a point of it. You remember that? All that, hey, he who seeks to lose his life will find it. Just replace life for self. It works really well. You want to get over yourself? That's when you find a real self, a good self, a self that exists for others. And so, you know, there you go. A few thoughts for how to stay married. But we all intuitively know that the goal isn't just to stay married. It is a great goal, but it's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is what? It's to have a good marriage that you want to stay in. That's what we're all aiming for. And so how do we cultivate imperfect but good marriages? Every marriage is unique, but there is a pretty predictable life cycle in most marriages that goes something like this. You know, you get married and things are imperfect. They're very imperfect, but they're good. Kind of like a really nice above ground pool. You know, that's what every marriage starts out like. But then you, um, you, know, you start to realize that your spouse is a little bit more imperfect than you thought they were. And while you know you're imperfect too, you know that, you're also absolutely certain that they're a little bit more imperfect and that's the primary problem in your marriage. <clears throat> Strangely enough, your spouse comes to the exact same conclusion about you. It's weird how it happens. Um, then comes this tipping point where you have to decide if you're gonna begin the painful process of sorting it out or if you're gonna make a truce to just not talk about any of it anymore. Now, in the short term, choosing the truce is always easier and happier, <laughs> I can assure you. It's a better way for a good date night. Um, but in the long term, it makes it harder to stay married, and it makes it impossible to have a good marriage for the long haul. And so the alternative to the truce marriage is you know, what I would call the, the work-on-it marriage. But we need to get really clear here that when we call it the work-on-it marriage, what most of us think is what? And work on the marriage means my spouse needs to work on the marriage. <laughs> I'm good, man. I'm great, you know? I'm not a 10, 9.5, you know? Uh, they need to clear up their side of the marriage and it'd be great. No, that's not how it works. As opposed to the fake work on that marriage, that is the my spouse should work on that marriage, here's what a healthy work on that marriage looks like. Listen to what Tim Keller says. He says, the alternative to this truce marriage is to determine to see your own selfishness as a fundamental problem and treat it more seriously than you do your spouse's. Why? Well, only you have complete access to your own selfishness. And only you have complete responsibility for it. So if two spouses will say, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in the marriage, then you have the prospect of a truly great marriage. And look, I know how hard this is. Because I know that the real problem in the marriage is your spouse. Okay? I know, I know, same here. But the best and most biblical thing that you can do to have a good marriage is to work always under the assumption that the greatest problem in your marriage is you and your selfishness. Because it probably is, and it is definitely the one variable for which you are most responsible. Right? Now a quick little lightning round of a few good marriage tips. Tip number one, go all in. David Brooks wrote a good book about this. He says, marriage is the sort of thing where it is safer to go all in and it is dangerous to go in half-hearted. I would only say that that applies for the entirety of the marriage, all right? There are all sorts of reasons by which we all can psychologize, hedging our bets a little bit. What if this, that, or the other? You always got to be all in on a marriage if you want to have a good marriage. You can't protect yourself from them in a good marriage. Tip number two, 
Good deeds are greater than talking everything out. Some of you know who I'm talking to? All right, let me help you out here. Because no matter how much you talk everything out, you have no hope of ever agreeing on everything. And you do not need to agree on everything. You don't even need to agree on everything important to have a good marriage. David Brooks again. <clears throat> he says the experts are all aligned on this. Don't expect some ultimate solution to the big disagreements in your marriage. Rather overwhelm the negative by increasing the positive swamp. Negative interactions with an ecstasy of good deeds. Okay, instead of sitting around just constantly talking everything out, parenting, expectations, this, that, you know what? Just go get ice cream sometimes. It's amazing what it'll do for the marriage. We just time out on the talk everything. Let's just go get some ice cream. I always function better after ice cream. Tip number three, embrace the evolution. Embrace the evolution. Um, the person you married when you were 18, 25, 30, it's not the same person that you're going to be married to when you were 40, 50, 60 years old. And I always tell couples this uh, before I have them do their vows at a wedding that I'm performing. I've done a few of your weddings, and I did this for you. I say what? I say, when you say these vows, you are not just saying yes to the person standing in front of you today. That's the easy part. Now, you're saying yes to everything that they will become over the years because the years change every last one of us. And that brings us back to our original prompt, right, which is how could marriage be such a tremendous source of both happiness and pain. There's this scene in a show about the rise of Uber. Uh, it's on Netflix right now. The show's called Super Pumped. Really dumb title. It's a pretty good show. And uh, in this scene, the founder of Uber is giving this like pro-launch party propaganda speech. And we're going to watch some of it. It's like 40 seconds long. Um, so we all love this idea of living frictionless lives, don't we? Oh, frictionless. Why? Well, because friction sucks. You know, like, I get it. We want to live frictionless lives. But here's the thing about friction. Friction is necessary for attachment. Okay, friction is necessary for attachment. What keeps a car's tires attached to the road? Friction. What happens when a car's tires don't have any friction with the road? Some of you found out last weekend when it iced, right? What happens? You slide off the road. You swerve into a ditch. And that is what is happening in mass in modern society. Y'all, we are swerving into ditch after ditch after ditch after ditch because we have bought into this nonsense, stupid idea that freedom 
is frictionlessness, that freedom is unattachment. And so we live unattached lives where we don't know how to belong. We don't know how to belong to a person, a place, a thing, a marriage, a community. We don't know how to do that. And then shocker, the single greatest source of unhappiness in the modern world, it's not repression. The single greatest source of unhappiness in the modern world, just as in the ancient world, just as in the future world, is what? It is loneliness. Because the single greatest source of happiness in the past, in the present, in the future is belonging. That's what we want more than anything is to belong. All that to say the friction of marriage, of friendship, of community, of church, whatever, of marriage, it uniquely produces the attachment and belonging that is real freedom. Because real freedom is not unattachment. Now, that's Bush League freedom. That's for kids, man. Right? The real freedom is having the right attachments. Real freedom is belonging and knowing how to belong. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Most gracious God, thank you for today and for the gift of today. We are here because and only because a good and gracious God has decided to host us for another day. And so we pause and we just say thank you for that. God, we come before you and... um, I pray for all the marriages in the room today because every marriage is hard in its own ways. We've got a long list of frustrations. Some of them are very serious and very consequential. And uh, we struggle with that, God. And so I just pray that you would be with us and that you would bless all these marriages. That you would help us as we uh, sort through the struggle whereby we really wanna like find ourselves and express ourselves. And there's something good and true there, but also we have to learn to get over ourselves. And so we pray that you would help us to strike that balance, God, between having a good, healthy sense of self and identity, but also realizing that the way to find a true self is by getting over yourself and giving yourself away. Because we find all sorts of gifts returned when we do that. I pray for so many in the room today who are dealing with broken marriages, God, who are dealing with divorces, who are dealing with loneliness and all sorts of forms that God, you would cover up any shame, any guilt, and you would instead just nudge us to take the next step forward, whatever that looks like, toward belonging, towards repentance. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.